Good evening. It's good to see everyone back again this evening. Uh, since it is uh, kind of the home folk, as uh, Edwin mentioned it, I want to express to you once again my appreciation for being able to be with you this week and to have this series of studies that we've had. You've done a very good job of paying attention uh, through some lessons that are somewhat technical, uh, filled with a lot of information that we've tried to get through in a very short period of time. And I know as the week is going on, uh, weeks like this can be a little bit tiring uh, physically. Uh, it's a little bit hard to continue to do everything that you need to do throughout the day and, and to find the time to come together in the evening and spend some time studying God's Word and doing a little extra work in our spiritual life. But I hope that you feel that that is beneficial. Uh, I have been able to be going back home to Bowling Green each night and returning in the evening uh, so I can do the things that need to be done back up there. We have some classes that go on during the day uh, with the congregation I'm working with up there and trying to keep the house in order as we're getting ready to move and, and all of those things. And uh, so I'm getting a little bit tired, too, as we've been going through the week. Uh, but I feel that it's been worth coming down here, and I hope that you feel it's been worth coming out as well. Uh, the drive to Bowling Green isn't too bad. Uh, I grew up in Iowa. And over the years, we like to go to vacation in Florida, and we travel through Nashville. I don't know how many times I've traveled through Nashville in my life. I always go on to Nashville when you see the construction. I don't think I have ever driven through Nashville without some type of road construction going on. Of course, they're doing that on I-65 now north of town again between Bowling Green and Nashville. So that's fun to drive through each day and, and see how far they're coming with the paving work. Uh, but overall, it hasn't been too bad, and I've been very happy to be here with you, and I hope that you're glad to be here tonight as well. In our first two classes, uh, we talked about the reliability of the Bible uh, Insofar as the copies are concerned, having accurate copies of the text, the harmony and unity of the Bible, the inspiration of the Scriptures, and prophecy. And tonight we're going to branch out a little bit and consider the area of biblical accuracy. And as we do that, we're kind of moving from one area where we've just kind of talked about the Bible in, in how it comes from God and how important it is to us, into an arena where the critics make a lot of attempts to discredit the Bible. We're kind of shifting from talking just about the Bible and giving some instruction to, in a way, defending the Bible when it comes to biblical accuracy. And the reason we have to do that is because of what I talked about last night. If the Bible is truly inspired, if it's the Word of God, then it will contain no errors. In fact, if we do believe and teach and and uphold the idea of a verbal plenary inspiration, not even the smallest detail will be incorrect. There won't be the minutest matter that is wrong. That's part of the discussion over biblical infallibility, and it's built on the idea that God, by His nature, is perfect. His knowledge is perfect, and therefore the words that He would produce would be perfect as well. And the basis of our faith is built on this concept. Jesus so believed in the exactness of God's Word that He proved the resurrection by the tense of a verb. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 31 through 33, when He was talking to the Sadducees about the resurrection from the dead, He said, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I hope you've studied that passage before. But what stands out on biblical accuracy there is Jesus made his entire argument based on the resurrection from what God said in this passage, I am the God 
of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God, but I am the God, Jesus says that alone proves that there is a resurrection from the dead. That alone proves that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are in some sense still alive when God made that statement and will be alive in a more fuller sense in the future. And he made that argument based off the tense of a verb. Present tense instead of past tense. In a similar fashion, Paul followed this example by proving that Jesus is the source of blessing, arguing over the number of a noun. In Galatians, the third chapter, verse 16, he says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Paul makes the argument that we know the seed promise referred to Jesus because it was singular in its usage and not plural. It proved that it wasn't the entire Jewish nation that would be the source of blessing to all individuals on the earth. But it would be one seed who came through this promise, arguing on the basis of this number. And those statements implied reliability. Very few of us today would probably argue on the basis of the tense of a verb or the number of a noun. Yet their faith in God's Word was such that they would not hesitate to do so. They believed that literally what God said was exactly and precisely the truth. Jesus spoke of jots and tittles in some translations of Matthew 5.18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, the New American Standard says, or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not even one letter, not even one dot of an I or the crossing of a T will pass away from the law. It was significant. It all had meaning. And Jesus said that it was accurate. And in so doing, he placed the bar pretty high. The biblical writers claimed inspiration. We talked about that last night. The memory verse that the children have. I don't know if the adults are supposed to memorize it as well. I have slightly different translations from what was up on the screen with the kids. But it says, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that scripture reading tells us that all scripture comes from God. All Scripture was God-breathed, and I understand when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, that Scripture that he's referring to is probably the Old Testament Scriptures more than anything else. The Law of Moses and, and the books that had been handed down and the Scriptures that Timothy had been taught from his youth that he would understand to be Scriptures, they are given by God and will contain no errors. But that passage doesn't just refer to the Old Testament. It refers to the New Testament as well. How do we know that? Well, because the New Testament is called Scripture as well. What Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he talks about what our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. Peter talked about what Paul wrote, and I've always appreciated this passage, because he says there are some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. It gives me kind of a biblical precedent to say, you know, I look at some of the things that are in the New Testament, and I, I don't get everything that's said. He talks about those things being hard to understand. He talks about people distorting them and twisting them, those who are untaught and unstable. But he also does something significant in referring to Paul's letters 
and equating them with the rest of Scripture. Now, what Paul said in all of his letters, just like the rest of Scriptures, and if Jesus can argue off of the tense of a verb, or Paul can argue over the number of a noun, then certainly there's significance to this, his letters being put with the rest of Scripture. That they are Scripture, and that they were inspired by God as well. Paul taught the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You received the Word that came from us, but you recognized it wasn't our Word. It was God's Word. You recognized it for what it really was. And again, this all goes back to the idea of inspiration. But inspiration implies accuracy. The writers of the New Testament claim reliability. They claim to be eyewitnesses. Second Peter 1.16, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, Peter said. This wasn't a made-up story, and that will relate a little bit to what we talked about tomorrow night with the martyrs and what they were willing to give on behalf of the gospel. But he says, we saw these things. We witnessed them. We heard them, touched them. We beheld them. Others claim to have carefully investigated, as Luke does. Many others have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That Luke, he doesn't claim to have been an eyewitness. He says there were others who were. There are those who saw it from the beginning and they've handed it down to us, but he does claim to be an investigative reporter that I have investigated everything carefully and I'm writing out for you in consecutive order what truly took place, what's been handed down from the eyewitnesses so that you might know the exact truth about what happened. Regardless of the expression used, they all claimed that these writings could generate faith in the reader that we didn't see it or hear it, yet we believe through their words. We believe through their teachings and what they convey to us. As the Gospel of John says in John 20, 30, and 31, there are many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. As the Gospel of John tells us, there's a lot of other things that could have been included that weren't. But the things that were included are meant to generate faith. They're there so that we will believe and that we'll find life in Jesus. And so we have to ask, how important is it that that information be exact? How important is it that there be no errors? Nothing that can be confirmed to be a mistake in any way. And in truth, if it can be proven that the Bible contains factual errors, or inaccuracies, that would be a serious blow to our faith. As someone whose faith is very strong, someone who's not easily shaken by what science might say or what discoveries are made or what philosophers might bring up, I think my faith is, is pretty strong. I try to take heed lest I fall. But I'd have to admit that if it could be proven that the Bible was wrong in what it said in some area, 
I think that'd be a serious blow to our faith. You might think I'm being a little bit picky here. You might think it's not as big deal as long as the gist of the message is correct. If some details were proven wrong, maybe that wouldn't shake your faith too much. But the biblical writers didn't claim to be giving us the gist of the matter. They didn't claim to be giving us their take on it or their personal spin. They claimed exactness. They claimed that this is literally what God said, and this is specifically what happened. And if that's wrong, if there's inaccuracies or errors in one area, why not another? If there's some detail that's given to us, that's incorrect, how can we say, well, the Bible made a mistake here, but it didn't make a mistake when it said Jesus claimed to be God? Or when the tomb was found empty? Or when he fulfilled all of the scriptures? Or when he promised he was going to come back again? It could knock the legs out from under everything that the Bible says. And so, as you might imagine, this vulnerability has drawn critics throughout the ages. Those who understand what's on the line with the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible, understanding this to be God's Word and how important accuracy is, they understand that if they can prove just one error, they can undermine the Bible. If they can prove just one fact that's wrong, using every field of history and science, they've examined the Word. They've made blanket statements that the Bible is full of errors. I've heard those statements made. I've heard theologians or scientists, atheists especially, well, that, that book is so full of errors that, you know, it's just not trustworthy. But when they're given specifics, show me the errors, it's a little bit harder for them to pull them out. Yet they've tried. They've tried to discredit the Scriptures. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible provides plenty of areas where it could be questioned. The Bible, in some ways, kind of helps the critics because it gives us all kinds of details that can be checked and challenged. The Bible contains what at times appears to be an excessive amount of detail, often providing far more than what seems necessary if you're simply trying to convey a story. Have you ever noticed that when you're reading through Scripture? How many times you're reading an account where we might summarize it, especially if we were teaching children or teaching someone that doesn't know the Bible, we just thought, well, so-and-so went from this place to that place. You know, Jason traveled from Bowling Green down to Franklin. Well, you could say that, and that conveys the message. But the Bible oftentimes will tell you every city that they passed through in between, what the geographical relation was between those various cities, whether they went up or down, what time of year it was, what the condition of the land was, and what was growing in the fields. And you'll read through some of these biblical accounts, and there's all of that excessive detail here. Why is it there? Well, it can build our faith, help us understand this is a historical document. It's not just trying to make up a story, but it's also all of these areas that can be challenged, that can be tested. If those cities don't lie in line with one another, if there's an incorrect reference in geography, or if those crops didn't grow in that particular area. It's kind of interesting to go back and look at some of the statements that are made. But oftentimes, though those matters are small, what we find is internal consistencies in the Scriptures that can be put to the test. Some of the things that we find in the Bible that may not seem like that big a deal, but you notice that even on the minute details, the Bible is consistent. In the message that it gives, things like the green grass 
that Mark mentions. In Mark, the sixth chapter, verse 39, that when Jesus fed the multitude and he took the 5,000, he had them break up and sit down. And, and Mark tells us, and sit on the green grass so they could eat the bread and the fish. Well, is that that big a deal? I don't know that it is. But it's completely consistent with John's reference in John 6.44 that this event occurred near the time of the Passover, which is about the only time in Palestine that you find green grass on the ground. A little detail like that, but in two different Gospels, they confirm one another. It's something that almost seems like a side note. Or in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Luke describes Paul's Roman imprisonment and mentions being bound with a chain. That Paul was put in prison and that he was bound with a chain. And that's not really all that necessary to say. But it's worth noting that in the letters that we traditionally have associated with Paul's Roman imprisonment on that time when he wrote Ephesians and Philippians, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, that in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 20, he mentions his chain. He mentions his bonds in Philippians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 4 and the 13th verse of Philemon. In those passages where Luke had said earlier he was putting chains, those books that were written at that time, he mentions those chains. It's consistent. When we're told in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 20 that Joseph was thrown into prison, where the king's captives were bound, that word bound is used again. And in Joseph's account, it doesn't seem like it's that important. In fact, you know, he was put in charge of some of the other prisoners. I don't think we usually think of Joseph as really being bound in that prison. But it's worth noting that hundreds of years later, the psalmist, in talking about Joseph's situation, says in Psalm 105, verse 18, that his feet were hurt with fetters, and he was laid in chains of iron. Consistency. Even on a detail that we might overlook the first time reading through it, or in describing Timothy and his background. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy the faith that first existed in his mother and his grandmother. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, he mentions the Scriptures that he had been taught, the sacred writings from the time he was a babe in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. And yet, we know that Timothy was a Gentile. And someone will say, well, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, here you almost do seem to have an inconsistency. His mother was faithful. His grandmother was faithful. He knew the Scriptures from his birth, but he's a Gentile. He had to be circumcised when he's traveling with Paul. Does that make sense? Well, it fits perfectly with what we're told in Acts 16, verse 1, that his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. That he would have been raised as a Gentile because of his father, but his mother was Jewish and would have had that faith, and that she passed it on. She's mentioned, not his father. His grandmother's mentioned, not his father. Are those coincidences? I think the Bible critic is likely to trivialize those examples when they're isolated from one another. Not that big a deal. But when literally hundreds and hundreds of these incidental details are observed to perfectly mesh together, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, multiple accounts, and even the smallest details are the same when they're written hundreds of years apart and in different places and, and kind of recounting different events or from a different point of view, those details are the same. They not only show incredible reliability, they do seem to point to deity or divinity being behind it. When the details provided in the pages of Scripture withstand the test of history, 
geography and culture, they also lend support to the Bible's credibility. We're not going to talk as much tonight about scientific foreknowledge. I originally was going to have a section on that as well. That does now have to be saved for another time. What we learn about science and what we learn in God's Word where He seemed to predict some things that man didn't understand. That kind of fits with the prophecies we were talking about last night. But when we look at other matters of, of history and geography and culture, and when you think of things like in the book of Acts, book of Acts that's often been examined and criticized because there's so much detail. Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine Mediterranean islands. He mentions 95 individuals by name, 62 of which are not named anywhere else in the New Testament. 62 people who only appear in the book of Acts, and his references, where they can be verified, have always been correct. That's amazing when you consider that the political and territorial situation of his day was in a state of almost constant change. Cities were changing, what province they belonged to. Names of cities were changing. Names of rulers were changing. And that was constantly in flux. And, and Luke gives us all of that information. Who the Tetrarch was, who the ruler was, what city we were in, what province it was found in, how we traveled from here to there, and every time it's possible to verify him where we have enough information to make a decision one way or the other, is this right or is this wrong? He's been proven right every time. Now, we don't have enough information to test every detail in the book of Acts. But the fact is there's never been verifiable information where we've been able to say he absolutely is wrong. He absolutely used the wrong name here or put this city in the wrong province or gave some detail that was inaccurate or inconsistent in some way. Not a single geographical reference in the Scriptures has been refuted. Whether you're talking about going up from Antioch to Jerusalem in Acts 15, verse 1, even though the city was south. The Bible says you went up, they went up to Jerusalem. Well, why did they do that? Well, Jerusalem was higher in elevation than Damascus. They did go up, even though they went down on the map when we would look at it, or when it gives the compass points, north, south, east, and west. It's consistent every single time. Not one error, or one mistake. And historical references confirm such details as the expulsion of the Jews from Rome under Emperor Claudius in Acts the 18th chapter, verse 2, that's made mention of. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome for a long time. People questioned whether or not that was the case. We have historical documents that confirm that. The reigns of Tiberius and Pilate, his mention in other documents, the crucifixion of Christ, the early existence of Christianity, the writings of other ancient historians, such as Josephus or Tertullian, support the biblical record, other histories that mesh and don't call into question what the Bible says. Culture even confirms some of the incidental references contained in the Bible. Matters that don't necessarily call into question its accuracy but reveal a side of the Bible that just, it really helps you understand why such great detail was given. In Genesis, the 33rd chapter, and in verse 3, we're told that when Jacob went to meet his brother Esau, as he's traveling back to meet his brother, and he's concerned about how his brother is going to receive him, and you know the trouble that existed between Jacob and Esau, and he's just afraid he's going to kill him. That's what he's afraid of. Genesis 33, verse 3, we're told that as Jacob is approaching Esau, he bows himself down to the ground seven times 
as he nears his brother. Interesting detail that's given to us. Why it's there, we can't really say. But what's interesting from history and science and archaeology is that when they discovered the tablets at Tel Armarna, there's a record of an ancient custom that when you're meeting someone who you consider to be of a higher rank than yourself, you bow yourself down to the ground seven times. It's what they did. It's what ancient culture revealed, and it just makes it make a whole lot more sense why a detail like that was given. He wasn't just bowing himself to the ground sometimes because he wanted to do it a bunch. Or he thought, well, you know, seven seems to be a biblical number. It's a perfect number, and I'll choose that. That was a custom of the day. That's what you did when you met a superior. You bowed down seven times. He's trying to exalt his brother and restore that relationship, consistent with the culture in which it was written. And the archaeologists have been digging all over the ancient world to find what they can about the Bible. This is probably the greatest field of study as it relates to biblical accuracy. In recent years, the discoveries have been made, and archaeologists themselves admit, even those that don't really believe in the inspiration of the Bible, and some of the greatest archaeologists were those who initially set out to disprove the biblical record. They thought they could find in history something that would contradict God's Word, but they admit that there has never been any archaeological discovery that has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Not one. In fact, many of them conform at least very closely or in exact detail to the historical statements of the Bible. They keep looking, but they haven't found them. We don't have time tonight to go over all of these matters. You could easily spend a whole week on the influence that archaeology has had and our understanding of the Scriptures, the support it has given the inscriptions and the seals and the monuments that have been found, mentioning individuals like King Jehu and Ahab and David and Uzziah and Cyrus and Hezekiah and others. The historical pieces that confirm the Assyrian conquest of Israel or the Babylonian capture of Jerusalem and some great archaeological discoveries that give us names and places and dates that all fit perfectly with the chronology we have from the Bible that all fit perfectly with the account. Sometimes some details are a little bit different, but you, you understand why they're there. I mean, kings don't oftentimes record their own defeats, and they're going to spin things in a little bit positive way for their own posterity. And we see a little bit of that, a little bit of exaggeration and some details that are different in those archaeological or historical records. But they fit with what the Bible said. They don't contradict those areas. Even a very interesting find related to the Exodus account It's an older find. It's one that I haven't heard much mention of. But in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that the Israelites were being forced to build the treasure cities of Pithom and Ramses for the Egyptian ruler. Back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, if we begin that Exodus account, that's what the slaves are doing. They're building those cities for Pharaoh. In chapter 5, we're told that initially the slaves made bricks containing straw. Remember that? But later the straw was not given to them. They had to use stubble. They had to collect their own straw. Eventually they ran out of that, and as they were being punished by Pharaoh, they had to continue to make bricks, but they weren't provided the building materials that they needed. They had to do it on their own. It's interesting that Pithom was excavated in 1883, and in 1908, old finds. But what was revealed in that excavation is that the lower layers of the structures were made with bricks that were made with good straw, chopped straw, 
strong bricks, that the middle layers of those buildings that were constructed just had stubble and very little straw, and that the top layers of those buildings were made of clay only, and there was no straw in the bricks. Where Pithom was excavated, that's recorded. That was in the archaeological structures that are there. That's not a challenge to biblical accuracy. But a little detail like that, that's been confirmed when we look in other areas, helps us to see how accurate God's Word was. It's completely safe, and not at all an exaggeration to say that there's much more historical confirmation for the Bible than for any other ancient document. There's no other ancient document where there's as much information that confirms over and over again what that document says as there is for the Bible. And even the best shots of the skeptics have always failed when it comes to their efforts to disprove God's Word. I told you earlier, there hasn't been things found that contradict the Bible. There sometimes has been an absence of evidence that's been used to try to contradict the Bible. Famous cases from history, probably matters that you've heard something about, if you've ever studied this field, like the existence of the Hittites, the Hittite nation. The Hittites are a group of people that are mentioned in the Bible over 40 times in our Old Testament. They're depicted as having a large empire that struck fear into the hearts of all of their enemies. They had some relation there with Israel. Israel knew about them and the other nations of their day knew about them, feared them. A powerful, massive empire with a strong army. And yet the problem is for centuries, history didn't record these people. That for a long time into modern history, people would read of the Hittites in the Bible but there was no mention of the Hittites in ancient Egyptian literature or Assyrian literature or Babylonian literature or Persian literature or Greek literature. The Bible stood alone as the only document that talked about this massive empire known as the Hittites. And critics looked at it and said, well, boy, here's an area of inaccuracy. If there was an empire this powerful and this strong that all the nations around them knew of them and feared them, someone else would have mentioned them. This was a fabrication. This was made up by the Jews as they wrote their Bible. And they called into question the Bible's credibility. There's an entire nation that didn't really exist. And the Bible talks about them like it did. But in the late 1800s, a few inscriptions were discovered in Syria that mentioned the people known as the Hittites. It brought some of these things to light that the Bible had been talking about. That was just a few inscriptions. But in 1906, during an excavation in Turkey, they found the city of the Hittites. They unearthed their capital and discovered more information about the Hittites than they could have imagined, including a library that had 10,000 clay tablets. They found the library of the Hittites. They found the legal code of the Hittites, their law, their culture, their custom. It was a massive empire that at one time ruled a large portion of that part of the world. The Bible had told us that. The critics had questioned it. They eventually found confirmation of it when the capital was discovered. And all of that literature, nowadays nobody questions the existence of the Hittites. The identity of King Sargon in Isaiah chapter 20 and in verse 1. We're told of a Sargon who was king of Assyria, and Isaiah records that for us. 
when Sargon was king of Assyria and when he sent the troops there into Israel. And yet ancient historians omitted any reference to an Assyrian king called Sargon. Again, it was one of those areas where the historians and the scientists and the archaeologists, they were just sure because from Assyria we have pretty good records. They had records of dynasties. They had who succeeded who in, in the Assyrians' own writings. Kings were talked about, but never a Sargon. There was no King Sargon, certainly one that didn't fit into this time period. And so the critics attacked its reliability. Either he made a mistake on the name, or he made somebody up, or when somebody wrote this book of Isaiah centuries later, remember Isaiah is one of those that they always try to post-date, that that individual made a mistake when they looked back. But in 1843, an excavation began near Nineveh. And they found a palace. A palace that on its walls had an intricate history of a king. A king who besieged Samaria in the first year of his reign. A king named Sargon. That's who he was identified as. Had built his palace there, had ruled over Assyria, actually had moved his palace several other times. That's recorded in the walls that were dug up. Portions of this are in the Oriental Museum in, in Chicago. The Oriental Museum. They, they brought part of that find back, and they continued to do excavations and learn more about Sargon than anybody knew. A king that critics didn't think existed. Back in 1963, another artifact was discovered at Ashdod, a monument that was erected to Sargon after one of his victories, and so he existed after all. Isaiah was the only one who told us about him. History's now confirmed it. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an attack on Luke, and as we've already noted, Luke provided extensive details to his writings. As a result, he's been called into question on numerous facts. Critics at one time or another questioned all kinds of things that Luke talks about, the census, Quirinius as a governor, different rulers that he talked about, all of these matters, which have later been verified. But one area of note is the way Luke identified Sergius Paulus, the ruler of Cyprus, in Acts chapter 13, verse 7. He called him a proconsul. He said Sergius Paulus was the proconsul at Cyprus that dealt with Paul and his journeys. And the critics jumped all over that. Proconsul was a special title that was only used for a ruler of a senatorial province. In the Roman Empire, there were two different kinds of provinces. There were imperial provinces and there were senatorial provinces. And if you ruled a senatorial province, you were a proconsul. If you ruled an imperial province, you were a legate. And they said Cyprus was an imperial province. We know that. We know from historical records that when Cyprus was created as its own independent province, for a long time it was part of another, but when it was created as its own independent province, it was made an imperial province. About 27 B.C. They had that record. Paul was wrong, or Luke was wrong. It seemed like a small matter, but it showed an error in Luke's writing, and they loved it. They loved to play it up. He made a mistake. It's not inspired. He's just a historian like anyone else. And yet over time, history's proven them wrong as well. Further documents from other Roman historians show that while Cyprus was originally organized as an imperial province, it was changed to a senatorial province five years later. There was a deal worked out where some of the provinces switched between imperial provinces that were ruled by Caesar himself or the senatorial provinces that were ruled by the Senate. And it changed the way it was functioned. 22 B.C. So when Luke went there, when Paul went there, 
it had a proconsul. Coins and inscriptions have now been found on Cyprus, identifying their rulers as proconsuls. That'll be on their coins, on their monuments, on their inscriptions. And there's even an inscription on the north shore of the island that mentions the proconsulship of Paulus. During the proconsulship of Paulus, this took place on the island of Cyprus. It's been proven to be correct. Now, what's that mean to us? Well, it means that the efforts to disprove the Scriptures have failed. Every time they've tried to show biblical inaccuracies, they've not succeeded. But I also want to give a warning when we talk about these things. Because I think we need to be careful that we don't put too much trust in science. The fact of the matter is, as archaeology has progressed and as histories have progressed, they've ended up making the right decision. But science does not generate faith. Only God's Word does. And no matter how much we might go back and want to study archaeology and study history and find confirmation of these things, it doesn't matter whether the science confirms it or not. The faith comes from God's Word, and the sciences are subject to interpretation all the time. They're changing their interpretation. They're interpreting the same data in different ways. They have to constantly adjust and twist. But it is worth noting that science does support the biblical record, when the facts are laid out. Every fact that's been discovered is in harmony with God's Word. The theories may not be, but they constantly change. The theories are constantly evolving and mutating. And when the theories don't seem to fit, first of all, it shouldn't matter. And second off, you just wait a little while, they probably will. With more discoveries, the more they're coming in line with what the Bible teaches, what the Bible says, especially when it comes to archaeology. We've really uncovered a very little amount. Talking about archaeology, one archaeologist warned those who were looking to it for answers and said, you need to understand that only a small fraction of what is made or is written survives through history. We understand that. If Franklin, Tennessee was destroyed today through some natural disaster, my hometown is underwater. We're up on the Mississippi River in Iowa. It's not a good time for people up there. If that's wiped out, most of what was created or generated is going to be wiped out with it. A very little amount will end up being preserved throughout history. Only a small fraction of available sites have been surveyed when we figure out where an ancient city was. Only a small fraction of those surveyed sites have been excavated. When they excavate a site, they only excavate one portion of it and dig down through and kind of take a sampling of what's there and only a small fraction of the materials that are saved have been published. He said that an overly optimistic estimate would say that only about a fourth of what's produced in a city survives for posterity. Only about a fourth of those cities have been discovered. When about a fourth of those have been discovered have been excavated. When they excavate, they only find about a fourth of what's there. And only about a fourth of that has been published so we can learn from it. He says when you multiply all that out, that means that we have right now about one one-thousandth of the evidence that was left behind in ancient civilization. Not much to go on. Not much for us to build off of. But it is worth noting that with what we have found, it confirms the biblical message. It builds our confidence in what God has said. That He has given us exactness that we can verify. 
minute details that have proven to be correct time and time again, things that seem irrelevant to the message that's being conveyed. And yet God was right in what He said. And because we verified what we can, that should cause us to believe what can't be verified. To walk by faith based on the evidence that God has given us. We talked about that some last night as well. And since we see what God has said and it's come to pass and He's always told the truth and He cannot lie, that we hold to what He's given to us. Now it's even more precious. And when it comes to biblical accuracy, that we handle accurately the word of truth. Every word God has given us is there for a reason. While some might say you're being picky or legalistic, Jesus was, Paul was, every word matters. And we can put our confidence in it, and we can build our faith on it. I hope you'll be able to come back tomorrow night. We'll talk a little bit tomorrow night about the martyrs and the giving of their life for the word, and how that also gives us confidence in what God has revealed to us. Appreciate your attention.